Hi, my name's Justin. I'm a pessimist in a strange world, scouring Israel to find hope, inspiration, and goodness. Or, in other words, modern-day Lamed Vavnikim, 36 righteous souls who can show us the way. The Lamed Vav Siddiquim is a tale built on the idea that there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. This is my journey to find wonder and goodness in our once magical world. As a teenager, I felt like tragedy was always around the corner. Maybe I was just becoming more aware of the world. But I started realizing that, in many ways, tragedy was all around me, and I was just dodging it. We had a utility room in my basement of my childhood home. It scared me to no end. As a kid, when I had to go there to grab something for my mom, I would rush out and run upstairs as fast as I could. I did this up until middle school, or maybe high school, I don't remember. Looking back, there was nothing really scary about it. It was just a room. But that feeling still lingers. Years after the house was sold, and almost two decades after I first bolted up the stairs, that feeling, like someone was hiding, like they had broken in and they had hid right behind the hot water heater. This feeling made me run. I was running from something that wasn't chasing me, yet. I was running from a larger fear that I soon realized none of us can ever escape. Eventually, unfortunately, the worst days of our lives will arrive. It may be a death, a sickness, an accident, or in Hannah Mason's case, an armed robbery. Something struck me about Hannah's story as we sat in the courtyard of my makeshift 36 studio right in the center of the Imbal Hotel lobby. I realized that this woman lived and survived my greatest fear as a child. And honestly, she survived one of my greatest fears even today as an adult. I'll let her share her story. She tells it far better than I ever could. This is my conversation with author and life coach Hannah Mason. So, tell me about yourself. I'm originally from Colombia, South America, from Bogota. My parents were also born in Colombia, but none of their parents were. So I'm really like a walking embodiment of the ingathering of the exiles here in Israel. My father's parents were from the Greek islands. My mother's parents were from Germany. And through lots of different journeys, they all ended up in Colombia. We talk about, jokingly, about how my parents are an intermarriage of like Ashkenazi and Sephardi, which back in Colombia at the time was actually pretty like a rebellious thing to do. When I was five years old, back in Colombia, this was 1983, so Colombia was like really unsafe. We couldn't ride bikes on the street because somebody might take you or take your bike or both, you know, or just like hurt you in order to steal your bike. Um, We had a security guard that walked to our door and picked us up and then walked us to the curb where he put us on the school bus. And that happened every day just to get to school. And then one day we had a knock on the door. My sisters and I were in the middle of a guitar lesson. And these five dudes came into the house armed. And they had a gun to my mother's head for hours, for a couple hours. And they were trying to figure out how they could just like squeeze money out of us. And unfortunately, we didn't really have anything to offer them. 
So they threatened to kidnap my sisters and me, which was a pretty big deal because we knew people who'd been kidnapped and never returned. So it was like pretty intense. I actually recently told this story to a group of Mexican women. And one of the women, her husband had been kidnapped. And so it was like, it really touched the cord and she just started crying in the middle of the class. And like, I didn't realize what was going on. It was pretty intense. So my mother convinced them like, oh, come tomorrow and I'll, I'll figure out how to get money for you. And she's just very charming and convinced them. And in the meantime, we fled the country and we ended up in moving to Miami. What's it like to flee a country? So it's hard because I was five and I don't remember. What's interesting is that all of my memories are really just fantasy. It's like what we do in our minds in, in an attempt to tell ourselves stories about what happened, which is really true for everyone's memories. But I think particularly for me at that time, I was so traumatized that like kind of blocked everything out. And a few years ago, I told my sisters, I have this memory of us being in the back of a taxi cab and I'm on my knees looking back at our house and waving goodbye. And they said to me, that never happened. <laughs> they're older than you. Yes, they're older than us. Uh, me, they, they were nine and 11. Right. And for each of us, it was kind of a different experience. Because for me, I learned English very quickly and assimilated into American society much faster than my sisters did, understandably, because of their ages and my age. But at the same time, I came up with fantasies that they didn't come up with because of my age. So they were better able to, like as traumatizing as it was to like lose your home and everything you know and all of your friends and just a sense of the world being a safe place. We all lost that and we were all kind of in PTSD and none of us got therapy, not even my mom who had a gun to her head for two hours, like it's pretty crazy. But what my mind did is it came up with a whole narrative to try to understand the situation because nobody ever really talked to me about it. Yeah. Um, that said, there's these bad guys, they're chasing after me, they're gonna find me. And like in the movies, you know, like if you wanna find someone, you, you'll travel across the world to find them. Right. And so that was my fear, is that they would travel across the world and they would come and find me in Miami. So I had nightmares every night until I was like 12. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you remember what the nightmares were? Yeah, actually, I have like really vivid memories of my nightmares, oddly enough. So I had nightmares about being kidnapped, about just walking on my street trying to play and people grabbing me and me trying to scream and no sound came out of my mouth. I had nightmares of like monsters and goblins and witches and and then eventually it turned into like pretty dark stuff, like nightmares about being raped. And I would like plan, what am I gonna do the day that I get raped? Not like if, but when. And thank God the when didn't happen, but I was like so obsessed with it. And so the fleeing the country was just this sense of Everything you think you know, like the, it's, it's kind of like pulling the carpet out from, from someone's feet. It's like everything you think you know, it's like you have to start all over. And the negative side of that is that it's scary. It can make the world feel like a safe place. And the positive side of that is that you can learn a whole level of resilience that people who always grow up in one place having a very, you know, solid foundation never have. So for me, moving to another country just felt immensely easy. For me, moving to Israel was like the easiest thing. And I see for other people, they experience it as being very, very hard. Do you remember your first morning eventually in Israel? My first morning Or your first like day? I remember um, I came to Israel when I was 19, the summer between my junior and senior year of college. And I really wanted to come to Israel. And I remember getting off the plane and this is in the old airport. And the old airport's like nothing fancy. And I remember getting off the plane and 
having heard stories of people kissing the ground and being so excited to be in the Holy Land and all this stuff. And I was like, this looks like the airport in Barranquilla. Like I was like so unimpressed. I felt spiritually zero. And just kind of being in a new country was interesting, whatever, it was nice. But Israel didn't touch me on the inside until I landed in Sfat. And I was on this program called Leave No to Lehibanot. And we started in Jerusalem and then we got to Sfat and we were on a bus. And I didn't even notice where we were until the bus parked and we got off the bus. And the bus had parked in a very ugly place that had a lot of rubble and it was like behind a bunch of buildings. Like there was nothing attractive about the place where we parked. And yet the minute I got off the bus and my feet hit the ground, I just felt it. I was like, I've landed in Israel. I never heard about Sfat. I didn't know it was like the city of mysticism, but it touched me in a really, really deep way. And that first trip just made Judaism come to life for me for the first time, which was really exciting. So how long were you in Sfat? So that whole program was like three weeks, half in Jerusalem and half in Sfat. And then I went backpacking with one of my friends from the program for another three weeks around the country. And I didn't grow up observant. I like, grew up like traditional. We did Shabbat dinner and my dad made Kiddush and we'd go to the synagogue on the high holidays and stuff like that. And I felt very much lacking a Jewish education. So I overheard people talking about, like on that trip, I overheard people talking about this thing called yeshiva, that you could go and get a Jewish education. Like you could go and like learn. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. So I, that planted a seed in me that a couple years later, I came back to Israel to get that Jewish education that I always wanted. Tell me about kind of the transformation from trauma and then like a journey and then a career. So I think for a lot of people, it's actually something that I've noticed as a theme for a lot of people, the thing that drives them to actually do serious personal growth work is yeah. pain. Like people whose lives are really good and really comfortable and really happy and everything's working for them and everything's going well. Like at a certain point, they have to experience a certain amount of pain in order for them to create a shift. And for some people that pain comes when they set this audacious goal for themselves. Like there's this guy that we knew who decided he wanted to be a race car driver. And one of his earliest races, he won. And it was like a really big race. And he wins this race and he thinks this is gonna be like the apex of his life. And he's like, that's it? Like it didn't actually feel as fulfilling and meaningful as he thought it would. So for some people, the pain comes there. But for most people, the pain comes either from physical pain or illness or somebody dying or, you know, some suffering of some sort. And so for me, that definitely, that trauma piece was just like always calling me to rewrite the story that I had written as a kid. I wrote this story that people are after me. I can't trust people. The world isn't a safe place. I'm not loved. There's something wrong with me. And walking through the world in that way is just so excruciatingly painful. And then I decided to make Aliyah smack in the middle of the second intifada. So my bus got blown up and the cafe where I used to hang out blew up and I was on a date with a guy on Ben Yehuda Street and he's walking me home and we hear these explosions. And that was like the triple bombing on Ben Yehuda Street. And like the bakery that I used to go to blew up. Like, and, and, and it got to where like every time I heard a garbage truck come and like they, there's kind of a slamming sound that sounds a lot like a bomb. Every time I heard that sound, I would jump and I'd just be so on edge. Every time I heard fireworks, I'd be so on edge. Ambulance, anything. So it's like all of that accumulated pain just made me really want to seek a sense of peace. And it's still very much like a journey that I'm in all the time. My husband who's sitting right here can tell you that I'm not like always like copacetic. But 
just that hunger for a sense of peace and meaning and fulfillment beyond just trying to survive became so big. And so I just was reading books and taking courses and watching videos and talking with my friends who are also personal growth junkies and people who really seek higher experiences over time just have kept accumulating more and more tools. And as I accumulate tools and integrate them, then I can share them with other people because at my core, I'm an educator and I'm passionate about sharing with other people everything that I learn. Where do you think that need to share comes from? I don't know, but I've been on stage since I was like three. So I think it's just like part of my personality. I love, I love sharing. I love teaching. I love finding ways to explain complex concepts in the simplest of language that even children can understand. And I presume that adults like to hear things the way children do. So I really like to simplify concepts and tell stories. And I think also there's this just simple human desire at the core that's based on love that when we love someone, we want to give them the best of what we have. So if I've benefited from a tool, I'm just so excited to gift it to another human being and to gift it in a way that they can receive as best as possible. What do you think the biggest misconception is about like personal growth and personal journeys that you wish more people would understand? Good question. I think the biggest misconception is that personal growth is for broken people or sensitive people or soft people or weak people. Like any of those words, people have a tendency to conglomerate. And one of the presuppositions that I base myself on is that human beings are by design imperfect. It's literally our job. This is in our Kabbalistic tradition. God designed us as these imperfect beings whose job it is to create slowly over time more and more perfection in the world. And in order to bring more perfection into the world, you have to be imperfect by design, which is why every human being, the things that excite us the most are when we overcome challenges, when we set a goal and reach it, when we learn something new. That's what lights us up. That's why we get so excited about watching the Olympics and seeing these people who have worked so hard to do amazing things. We're in awe of excellence, but excellence is always a product of overcoming challenges. And so for me, personal growth is really what we're here to do by design. And some people don't really want to work so hard, so they'd rather label it as weakness yeah. um, so that they have an excuse to not have to face their demons. And what about like the circumstance of it and how do you, how do you balance that tragedy that happened to you and the people you love with belief of God? Ah, so the fact that you've put it as a dichotomy already for me is a fascinating question. Like, yeah. why do you presume that that kind of circumstance isn't good? Yeah. Right? right? You're presuming that God is good and God is pure light and pure love and all oneness. And within God, there is the capacity for, for everything, right? Everything is God, everything is divinity. So if that's the case, then these things that we call bad or we call tragic must have a, a significant purpose. And for me, very clearly in my life, the purpose has been to transform darkness into light. But it's also come from, okay, I'm gonna change tacks yeah. a little bit and tell a story. So there was a, a trip that I did a number of years ago where I went to the Ukraine with a group of women and we went to the grave sites of holy people, which, to me always seemed like a really weird thing. And yet there I was doing this thing. 
So it was like a five-day trip all dedicated to introspection and prayer and growth and trying to connect to the divine. It was like a deep, meaningful trip for me. And I land in Israel the day that there was a mass shooting inside of a synagogue in Jerusalem in a neighborhood called Harnuf. And I think this was like five years ago or so. And Dave and I decided to go to the funeral. And we go to this funeral and we're standing. This is like in this neighborhood has a lot of hills to it. So people are like, the funeral was sort of in a valley and everyone's like in the hills around the valley. They're just packed thousands of people at this funeral. And I'm watching this happen and I'm feeling inside of myself like a frustration and an anger at these terrorists who had the audacity to walk into a house of prayer and just kill people. And it's just such a, right, if you want to call it, there's nothing else you could call more tragic than that, right? So there is this tragedy happening and I'm trying to reconcile it with this like, I came back from this trip like on such a high and feeling so connected and so spiritual and all this pretty stuff, heart stars and butterflies and all of that. And I'm trying to reconcile these two things. And it was in that moment that I realized that the reason that trip was so rich and meaningful for me was because I showed up with all of my baggage, all of my stuff that I've done wrong, all of my mistakes, all of my brokenness, all of my weakness. And I said, God, here it is. I'm willing to admit that I've done all of these things and I want to do better and I really want closeness and I want to be a better human being. And I'm saying all of this knowing that tomorrow I'm probably going to screw up again. Or maybe even in an hour, I'm going to screw up again, right? I might say something not kind. I might forget to pay someone for their services. I might hurt people or eat something not kosher. I don't know. Like there's like a million things that I could do that are off the mark. And I want to be able to have the opportunity to have the free will to make those choices and to come back and apologize and get another chance and another chance and another chance. And if I get another chance to say the wrong thing, that guy has to have the, the chance to do the wrong thing too. If I get free will to all of the extent that I get my free will and that I have an opportunity to ask for forgiveness, so then that, you know, the terrorist also has free will to murder people. Because if it wasn't murder, then let's say murder didn't exist in the world. So then it would be stealing. And so then we could say, okay, so stealing doesn't exist in the world. And so then it would be just not saying nice things. And then nobody ever says anything not nice. And then it would be that, you know, you got a leak in your roof. Okay, so there's never leaks in your roof. And then it would be that somebody like, you know, ran out of money. Or, do you get what I mean? Like if you keep diminishing all of the tragic events and making them less and less tragic, then you get to the point where the Rambam says, if you stick your hand in your pocket to get a coin and you pull the wrong coin out of your pocket, that is cause for distress. Meaning that in some way, even that simple little bit of pain is already like the world not being to the level of perfection we're really desiring. So how could I say that I wasn't supposed to go through that? How do I know that in the many lifetimes I lived, I didn't hurt people to that extent? And now if you walk into my home, you see that it's 100% dedicated to welcoming strangers. Maybe I do that because of how I know what it is like to have somebody totally invade my home and to then have to go into a new country and be a stranger in a strange land. So I welcome Jews who've never been to a Shabbat table before. I welcome Christians. I pick people up off the street and bring them into my home. Like, that's our home. And 
maybe that's a product of everything that I've been through. And if I lived a cushy life, maybe I wouldn't be that inspired to do that kind of work. Can I call it a tragedy? I don't know. I don't know if I can. Do you think that your perspective on the incident evolved? I 100% know my perspective on the incident evolved because otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. My perspective on the incident went from God hates me and I'm not loved and the world is not a safe place to God loves me and I'm ultimately safe at all times. And part of that comes from knowing that I'm not this costume that I'm pinching right now that you can see me pinching, but our listeners can't, right? This costume that I'm wearing called my body isn't me. My soul is safe always. I forget that sometimes, but that's really the reality of it. And my soul was perfectly safe. These dudes came in, even if they had shot me, my soul would have been fine. And then I would have just taken off my costume and maybe put on another one, or maybe I would have been done putting on costumes, I don't know. And so when you look back on your life and you close your eyes and you think really hard, kind of like what comes to mind? Hmm. So it depends on what parts of my life. There are certain areas of my life where I've put a lot of energy into rewriting and certain areas of my life where I haven't. One particular thing that's coming to mind at the moment is my relationship with my father. So I invested a huge amount of energy into rewriting that story. Not because I changed my father in my mind or I changed myself from my mind or I changed the scenes in my mind. It's that I chose which scenes to focus on and I chose what stories to tell about what was happening in those scenes. So I went from being really like scared and angry and resentful and frustrated and sad around my father to being giddy and absolutely in love and super connected to my dad. It's that big of a, like you'd think I had two different fathers. And if my you know, dad has the opportunity to hear this podcast, he'll be nodding and crying as he hears me say this because it's so absolutely true. So now when I think about any memory that involves my dad, it's like there are memories that I had chosen to, to forget because they didn't fit my really sad narrative. And now, now I remember them. And there are memories that I had like hyper-focused on that just weren't really very important, but they really made my narrative come to life, my sad narrative come to life. And so I just don't really remember those anymore. So I keep like working on thinking about when I look back on my life, like what do I choose to see? And more and more, every memory that comes up, the biggest question that, that comes up for me is, what did I learn from that? What did I gain from that? Who am I now because of that memory? And some of those memories are sad. Like I have this memory from college where I was directing a musical and there was another student who'd written the musical and I was supposed to be the theatrical director, but he wasn't letting me do the directing. And so I'd give direction to the actors and he would say to the actors, you don't have to listen to her. And it was like a really difficult situation to be in. And I didn't have the courage to walk away until my body just produced so many panic attacks that I had to walk away. And it's like, I look back at that and, and it used to just really, really upset me and rile me up and get me really, really angry. And now I look back and I'm like, ah, it's such a beautiful reminder that listening to my inner voice is so important and that what I say matters a ton and that I know exactly what it is that I'm doing. And as a director, I can look back and know that he was wrong and I was right. Like I really knew what I was doing as a director and I have to have that level of confidence when I'm working with people as a coach because I'm giving them 
basically direction. I'm giving them cues for them to activate their, their imaginative faculties, their I'm asking the kinds of questions that are going to drive our relationship forward. And sometimes people don't like those questions. They're uncomfortable. And so they might a little bit fight me. And if I don't have confidence to know that I know what I'm doing, then they just walk all over me, which doesn't serve them because then they end up continuing to perpetuate stories and narratives that don't serve them. So like when I look back on that memory, it's like, ah, right. So it ends up being a beautiful memory because I ask myself, what did I learn from that? Wow. And kind of like thinking about that inner voice, it's a great prelude to kind of our last question that we're asking everyone. What is one song or mantra or line of Torah, Talmud, that kind of just like sings in your head when you need it most? Oh, oh there's so many. Okay. Can I use two? Because I really have a hard time picking. Sure. Okay. So there's one, which is, Shifti Bevet Hashem Yamim. And I dwell in the house of God for all my days. So I particularly like that one because I was so scared as a little kid of not having a home because I lost my home that as an adult, as soon as we got married, I said to my husband, we have to buy a house. We have to buy a house. And it came from such like this like primal survival fear place that we made a whole bunch of really bad financial decisions from that point forward that eventually led to us learning a ton about money and writing a novel about money, which was really great. But at a certain point, I realized that that obsession with having a house was, was very similar to somebody's obsession with like the costume of the body that they wear. Like the house is not what's going to keep me safe because a tornado or a flood could come and trash your house, right? So what is it that's going to keep me safe? Really being in relationship with God, right? That I, that I want my house to be, to be God. I want to dwell in the divine. I don't want to dwell in brick and mortar. And having that shift was really huge for me. I don't always remember that, but that's like, wow. that's the work. And what was the other one? So for me, Hashem roi lo God is my shepherd, I shall not want. Like whenever I'm, I don't even know if you know this. Um, I was just saying that to my husband. When I'm hiking and get really scared and have to like climb a ladder up a cliff or something like that. I didn't grow up hiking. So sometimes like it makes me nervous, even though I really, really love to hike and I do it a lot. I just say that entire psalm and I just say it over and over and over again and it's like God's like you know as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I shall fear no evil for you are with me it's like in those moments the valley of the shadow of death is fear that's my interpretation of it it's like the darkest place in the world is fear it's not a physical place it's an emotional place so when I go into the most fearful place it's like okay I'm holding on wow thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for having me She handed me her two books and left. But she didn't really leave me that day. I thought of her in the days and weeks that followed. Frankly, sometimes in doing these interviews, I forget to realize that behind each story, there's a real person that existed before the interview and after the interview. She walked in in my eyes as a victim who survived a tragedy. And as she left, I realized she was a woman who walked through the tragedy with grace, with gratitude, with conviction, with God, and with herself, her full self. Sometimes sitting with ourselves is the hardest part, though Hannah would likely tell you there is much more work she needs to do, to sit with herself, to be the best person, the best wife, the best mom she could possibly be. Walking to her next destination with her husband in hand 
on Jerusalem city stones as another day had come to an end, another victory against her captors, who she defied by embracing the tragedy. And that stuck with me. I hope no one I love experiences a tragedy, but I know that's not a realistic request. And so, if I have to, and I do, I will settle with the following. I hope when tragedy rains upon us, we can find the hope. And if we can't find the hope, I hope we can find Hana. And if we can't find Hana, well, let's just hope we find Hana. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our managing producer is Sarah Shemla. Our executive producer is Attila Samfalvi, and our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zayn. Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>